This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Things will happen that you have not anticipated. And my attitude toward those things, and I I fail to remember this in the moment frequently, is forgive yourselves for the mistakes you could not possibly have prepared for. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is A Good Cry with Michael Cruz Kane. Michael is a Filipino-American comedian, actor, and writer based in New York City. He is currently a staff writer on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where his work has earned him a Peabody Award, a WGA Award, and two Emmy nominations. He's appeared in every incarnation of The Chris Gethard Show and can be seen on High Maintenance and Love Life. Michael was a creative consultant for Billy on the Street and wrote for At Midnight's Pilot Presentation. A pilot he co-wrote and starred in, Good Dads, was recently screened at NYTVF. And along with Darcy Carden, he co-wrote and starred in Terrible Babysitters, a web series that featured Abby Jacobson, Nicole Byer, Lennon Parham, and more. And it was also part of SXSW's comedy lineup. Lots of letters here, people. Lots of letters. Michael performed stand-up and improv across New York and recently made his late-night debut on Late Night with Seth Meyers. He is the host of his new podcast, which we're going to be talking a lot about today, A Good Cry. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry that you, I, I didn't know uh, that you just read so much. I would have condensed that to a sentence for you. I was going to condense it, but it all felt really <laughs> important. So, and I, and I felt, cha- I felt challenged. I felt really challenged. So, well, you lived up yeah. to the challenge. Thank you. Um, so needless to say, you've done and are involved in a lot of stuff we're going to talk about. And I want to start with, um, like to start with where, where, you know, where people came from. Like, you know, um, heritage, where you grew up, a little bit about your family. Sure. Um, okay, so I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, um, and lived in a suburb uh, of New Haven called Woodbridge my entire pre-adult life. Um, my dad is a lovely Jewish doctor from New Jersey, and my mother is a Filipina wild woman from the Philippines. Um, <laughs> and so when, when I was a kid, she had her own business um, importing baskets and antiques and stuff from all over the world and selling them wholesale here. And now she and my dad work together at his office. Is that yeah. I was rambling? No. <laughs> Have I answered no, your question? It. Yeah. So um, multicultural upbringing on the East Coast. Yes. Yeah. That is correct. Okay. And so, um, Becoming, becoming uh, a writer, becoming a comedian, is this something that uh, you always knew about? Something that percolated? Something that just happened? I would say, per- I think percolating is right. I, um, f- I would say for most of my non-professional comedy life, I was like the funniest guy at the fill-in-the-blank. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had that experience. I, I went to college to 
perform in musicals, um, which didn't exactly pan out for me. <laughs> so I, I stopped that pretty quickly and I took a job teaching people how to take standardized tests for many years. Huh. But toward the tail end of doing that, I became sort of as a hobby and then, you know, very focused on doing comedy. So for the last like, you know, several years that I was a tutor, I was also on the side doing improv and stand up and all kinds mm -hmm. of things until I was eventually able to segue into where I work now. You know how there's um, driver school. They added, I don't know, 20 years ago, like comedian driver school. So they made something so terrible, funny. And I just thought <laughs> of having been tutored in standardized tests years ago and knowing through my kids and. I just have to say how fairly miserable the whole experience is, which I know is being a little bit revamped right now. Was there any co comedy? Could you do any comedy in that in when you were doing that tutoring? I mean, I think what made me a good tutor, I mean, as good as I, however good I was, was that uh, I have like, you know, a tendency to perform and to like really value the other person's um, emotional state while I'm talking to them. So I don't, I, I wasn't by far the most credentialed person at the company that I worked with. The area that I sort of established myself in is if there's a kid who really doesn't want to do tutoring, their parents are like, you know, having to drag them in shackles to tutoring. Mm -hmm. I was the kind of guy you would send to that kid. Cause I would yeah. sort of be like a no bullshit, yeah. Let's have fun, like yeah. establish a relationship with the kid that makes them excited to meet with me. So, I mean, that totally. was a very non non fun answer yeah. to your question that maybe was hoping for some fun in it. No, I feel like um, that's what I've also done over the years as a uh, child and adolescent uh, psychologist. It's sort of, you know, kids will say like, this is stupid. All therapists are, you know, they, you know, all they do is just look at you and nod and they don't know anything. And why would I pay anyone to talk about, you know, my family issues? And I'd be like, I totally agree. That is all a bunch of crap. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> exactly. it's like, <laughs> you know, and you just try to come in through relationship. Really? That's exactly right. And, yeah. I, and there's a lot of like just straight shooting with kids that some of those kids aren't used to. They sort of imagine a tutor or a psychologist yeah. or yeah. any kind of adult relationship as like somebody who's going to be totally dishonest with me. Yeah. And so coming into it right away for the kid to be like, you know, all this test is crap and my, you know, it doesn't really mean anything and I don't need a tutor. Why are you even here? And me being like, I don't know. I don't want to be here either or whatever. Yeah. Just yeah. To put the kid at ease that we're both going to be honest with each other for this hour. And, but we're working towards some goal that will ultimately help you. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've worked with some writers, um, in my role and, uh, some comedians, aspiring comedians and, uh, aspiring mm -hmm. writers. And what I'm always just, um, it's just, uh, I don't know, impressed by, I'm having trouble finding my words here, is what it takes to, p whether it's in writing or you're up on stage, to put oneself out there for complete and utter critique. And, I, and I'm wondering, like, has that, what was that like the first time you started doing that? And does that change as you become known and become successful? Yeah, so there, there are times when you are doing material that you know is good, that you feel totally safe. But mm -hmm. to answer your question in terms of, you know, the rejection of it, you try and get in a little bit of time in the, like, you have a 15-minute set that's like, this is pretty much airtight. Then you're like, you know what, let me throw five minutes in here that's brand new, just so I can f grow as an artist. Like, let me, like, try to see yeah. if I can, but also to feel that rejection from the audience is uh, that's definitely scary. That part doesn't go away. Like you'll, mm -hmm. you'll always have in stand up when you're, by, when you're by yourself working new material, there's definitely always that time of like, oof, this could go terribly. Yeah. Okay. So how does stand up, how is stand up similar and different from parenting? Wow, I should have come prepared for this question. I didn't even know didn't. that one. I didn't even know that one was going to happen. It just, it just happened. Let's see. How is it? Okay. Well, the more you prepare, the more prepared you are. <laughs> I know that's a tautology, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I think that's true. But on the other hand, 
things will happen that you have not anticipated. And my attitude toward those things, and I, I fail to remember this in the moment frequently, is forgive yourselves for the mistakes you could not possibly have prepared for. Oh, you know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah. you 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 had the set, you, you were ready to go, and in the middle of your show, a guy got drunk and threw up. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> and for a lot of parents, especially parents of young children, that's yeah. not that far of an analog no. To, no. to draw. It's very no. close. Wait, so I like that. So uh, everyone listen up to this. So the whole... so. The bottom line is you can only prepare so much. There's like only so much in our control and then be just, you got to go with it. I think that's true. I mean, that's what I tell myself. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think that's true also. So what about, um, well, a lot of parents are really hard on themselves, you know, about mistakes made or I didn't handle that well. Like, where do you fall on that continuum of being, you know, self-critical versus, hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm doing my best here. I mean, I fall, if the continuum is, if self-critical is zero and I'm doing my best is 10, I'm probably at a nine, 9.5. Yeah. And uh, that's probably a mix of knowing for myself that in order to like get through the day, I can't constantly be focused on, you know, uh, I gave my kid cold cut sandwiches again today. How, what if they get, you know, there's too much salt in there and then they get gout when they're, you know, yeah. I can't, I can't live my day like that. It, it makes me totally unproductive and sad. Yeah. So I just try to not when I made a mistake, acknowledge it to myself and to my wife and often to my kids to be like, look, I, um, I yelled at you like a minute ago mm-hmm. and that had nothing to do with you. And I shouldn't have done that mm-hmm. or whatever and try and create a culture of forgiveness in myself and in my family. Mm. Listen to that, everyone. Forgiveness. And it is, and it does get, uh, you know, our kids pick up on how we treat ourselves, how we treat others. So to cultivate that, um, for them to see you do that and uh, be self-forgiving and self-compassionate, that uh, that's healthy. That is really healthy. Okay, I'm glad you said that because yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know if it is or not. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, you've been in entertainment for a while and you, uh, you have a new podcast and mm-hmm. it's a really important podcast uh, about a very important topic. So a good cry. Tell, um, tell everyone, uh, the story of this podcast. Yeah. So, um, I guess it's 12 years ago now, 12 years in a week, pretty much exactly. Uh, my son died. So we have, uh, three kids, including the one who died. And the first two were twins. And, uh, he died 34 days after he was born from something called a volvulus, which is when your, uh, intestines separate from the wall of your body and they just kind of like twist around. Anyway, without going too deep into the specifics of that, he died. And it was a, a thing that, not surprisingly, totally blew up everything in my life. And also a thing that I wasn't prepared for in any way because grief was something that I always associated with other people. That it's like, you know, something horrible happens in a movie to another human. Nothing, nothing up to that point in my life, nothing bad had ever happened. Not really. Like Mm -hmm. what I had thought was the worst thing, I don't even remember now, you Mm -hmm. know, compared to that. And it led to feelings of isolation, of feeling like, you know, anger, all all kinds of negative feelings. And the podcast is born out of a desire to help other people not feel that way, Mm -hmm. to sort of demystify and destigmatize everything about grief. Because I think when people who have experienced some kind of tragedy are talking to people who haven't. When you talk about the tragedy, the conversations are usually very superficial and also very narrow. So it's like all we talk about is this sad moment. And the experience of grief to me is much more full than that. Like there's, Mm -hmm. you know, um, there's sadness for sure. There's anger. Weirdly, there are moments of joy. And as I get older, the grief is a weird, like, uh, I love it. I love that the occasional sadness that I have is 
a memory mm. of mm-hmm. my love for my son who isn't alive anymore. It's like it it connects me to him. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, I don't know what's healthy or what's not, right. but I know that that makes me feel good. It's like mm-hmm. having it sometimes watching a movie and being reminded of a feeling and being like, you know what, I'm going to take five minutes and I'm just going to be really fucking sad right now. Mm-hmm. Makes me feel good in a mm-hmm. way. I don't know if mm-hmm. that's, you know, self-indulgence or, or what it is, but it, it's a reminder for me. Yeah. It, this, it, I've gone way off what you were asking. No, about. no, what was this it is, this is, I don't know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> your show, this is exactly how your show, what your show came about. Um, yeah. Is the, um, the memory of your son and the talking about something that people have a very difficult time talking about, relating to understanding. Um, and, and, yeah, that that sadness keeps the memory alive. So you're talking about when the memory when you get sad, it is it's a connection to your son. It it's 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 memories that are in the past but taken right there to the present. That um and having read a little bit about what you've written about this, um you know, it keeps you guys are keeping him alive. He's part of your family. You know, he he's with you. Um I, I I'm curious as to what you think that is, if there's a distinction between sadness and grief from your experience, um, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I don't have a thought out answer to this, but off the top of my head, it's like, uh, it's like there's a, it's a Venn diagram where there's definitely some overlap, but the things aren't the same. Like for me, grief is like a type of sadness, you know, there, but also sadness is just a part of grief. Like grief is, I think at the very beginning, it's only sadness. Like the, if there's like a bottomlessness to it that I think a lot of people would identify with of like, you know, the first time something truly horrible happened to you being like, okay, well this will never end. The feeling that I have right now is going to be eternal. And mm-hmm. there's no, like, you know, this, this hole is dark and there's never going to be a light again. I think that's definitely part of it. But for me, Grief is the, it's the, um, like the negative space where my son would be. It's like the, those thoughts and feelings that pour into that. Mm-hmm. And it's much more than sadness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's again, like the love that goes into that. There's anger, there's nostalgia, there's so many things. And, um, I wish that it were less ineffable to me, but you know, we mm-hmm. only have words to describe the feelings and right. doesn't quite do the job. Right. And I, there's so, in my experience, there's so um, personal and professional, like there's so many types, versions, experiences of grief that people have. Um, or at times they say that, you know, don't have, you know, like, aren't I supposed to be feeling a certain way? And I think grief is yeah. one of those things that people feel a sense of like, there's pressure to feel a certain way with profound loss, which I think can also complicate the complicated feelings of, of, yeah, totally. of, of this thing. I think that, I mean, that's something I've talked about. So you know, we've had a, a been fortunate to have really great, open, generous people on the podcast. And something that some of them have talked about is that feeling that you do have to perform grief sometimes one of my recent guests lost a sibling when she was very young and she talks about having to, you know, all these people saying, are you okay? And ha- constantly having to be like, yes, I'm okay. And also I'm very sad. And right. for her as a child feeling just like, you know, utterly inundated with other people's needs in a time when really like, you know, you need to take care of yourself, but you maybe don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Some people, um, talk about grief with the, you know, just that, that feeling, which is beyond words, beyond pain, beyond words. Um, all the stuff many of us think about with grief, you know, how do you move on that feeling you talked about that never goes away. And then you also described it as like there, it gives you something positive too, right? It it seems it's it's so multifaceted for, for you. It's something that you embrace when it comes. 
I try to. I mean, I, I don't want to put myself on a pedestal at all. Uh, so, but I, I do try to accept that feeling when it happens because I have found for myself that if I have a feeling, especially a strong one like that, and I try to stuff it down, that it's going to come out someplace. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like somebody's going to, you know, bump into me totally innocuously at the supermarket and I'm going to get super mad at them. And it's like, why is this? Oh, right. That's because like a week ago, I really needed to like cry for a second and I mm-hmm. didn't. And now here it is. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it does feel like, you know, it's water that's coming up that it's like, you just got to let it, you got to let it out or mm-hmm. it's, it's coming out regardless. So you right. will have to decide whether you want to have some feeling of not control, but like a, of a oneness with it, or if you want to fight with it. Mm-hmm. I've never said that before. I don't know if that's totally a bullshit or not. No, that. <laughs> oh, can I yeah. swear on this podcast? I don't, I'm uh, sorry. I haven't even thought about it. I that. have no idea. Yes, yes, you can. <laughs> okay. You can. Um, All right. Okay. So, well, fighting or oneness I mean, that that sounds very mindful-based, right? It's sort of like when we resist reality, when we resist what is, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of friction, there's a lot of distress. And the thought is, if we can accept what is, a la Dalai Lama and others, that there, we can experience more inner harmony with the acceptance of what is. And I do think of what the... Um, Dalai Lama has said, which is, we can be okay even if our life situation is not okay. Smart guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah, yeah I'm not, uh, I'm not versed in any of the stuff you just talked about in any kind of you know meaningful or I'm not educated in it at all. I'm mostly absorbing my thoughts from like the giant clouds of the internet that that pass yes. through my life all the time. Yeah, but that that rings true to me. What you're saying. Mm-hmm. So you you talk about 10 years, like 10 years from loss to talking to writing. Um, what, so ta- ta- what was that 10 years? You know, how were you dealing with this for 10 years? And then what changed? That's a really interesting question. The For 10 years, I would say most of my process with it was having some feeling, looking at my wife and saying, oh man, can you imagine if you were alive and her being like, you know, I was just thinking that same thing or, or, but it was a pretty private feeling. I mean, I would write about it, um, maybe on the anniversary of his death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't something that I, it didn't feel necessarily useful to me yeah. or to anyone else for me to talk about it as much as I thought about it, which was, you know, pretty frequent. And it's also, we have a very, um, this is a digression, but our situation is unusual and then doubly unusual because he has a twin brother who right. lived, right? who's, you know, uh, the best. And so there's a weird like joy tied up in sadness because everything that his brother does, you're like, Oh man, this is so mm-hmm. great. And there's a, some, not, not, not all the time, but sometimes you'd be like, man, wouldn't it be cool if there was another one of these? Like there's supposed to be two of these. Mm-hmm. And there's that sense of being lucky that we got any at all that we, mm-hmm. you know, that we have him. I don't know. What was the question? <laughs> Um, yeah, the change between, um, Oh, right. So the change was that on the 10 year anniversary of his death, I tweeted this, um, you know, string of tweets about grief and how I'd been feeling Mm -hmm. and just wanting to see if anybody else felt similarly, like they had this thing kind of bottled up inside of them and that they hadn't known how to access with other people. Mm -hmm. And once I tweeted that, you know, I don't have a lot of Twitter followers. I'm not like a super famous person or anything. Thousands upon thousands of people started responding on Twitter, telling me these wow. like really personal, I mean, profoundly sad stories about, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a sibling that drowned in a pool or a, a you know, father that died in a car accident or whatever. This long list of, um, of griefs. I don't yeah. know if I've ever used the plural of grief yeah. before, mm-hmm. but 
it made me aware that maybe it would be helpful to people if there were more public conversation about this thing that they never talk about. And the anonymity of the internet made them feel okay. It's much easier to be like, you know, every day when I go to work, I cry under my desk for 20 minutes. If your handle is, you know, boobs machine 68, yeah. than it is to put your, your name and your face on like, Hey, on this feeling of being really sad sometimes because mm-hmm. people feel ashamed of it, I think. And that my hope is that they won't feel that way anymore. And that's what sort of an, it was other people's response to my tweeting about it that yeah. really changed the way I thought about this. Did it change your experience as well? Yeah, it did. I mean, the, you know, everyone is fighting a hard battle. I don't know what that quote is exactly, but that mm-hmm. sense of it really, um, that felt more true to me than it had before. Uh, the idea that, all these people that you see everywhere, so many of them have suffered this, um, you know, a loss that at one point or maybe still feels unbearable and that it's so isolating and such secret when really it's one of the few universal things that binds us together. And I think I didn't have that idea in my mind until people started responding to my thoughts and my story um, I, I guess I should say our thoughts and our story, including my wife and that also, but that sense of belonging to humanity in a way that I hadn't before was profound to me. And I, and, um, I'm thankful to all the people who reached out and continue to reach out for like, you know, enlightening me in that way. Surprises from the show, like content wise, I mean, stuff that's come up or, um, that you that you didn't ex- expect or experiences described that you, that you didn't see coming? I mean, having, uh, I have a great producer for my show and, um, you know, we're pretty well prepped for when the guests come on. I think the thing that maybe is surprising to people who listen to it is the complexity of the emotions of the people who have undergone this. Mm, yeah. I think what's surprising is that if you are a griever, you will recognize that. Cause I think that, you know, you might feel guilty about a joke you told the day your mother died or mm-hmm. like the things that you did to get yourself through that or the way you felt about the annoying people at the funeral. But we all, you're allowed to have those feelings and they're very common. And I think, that might be something that surprises people who listen to it, that you know, the people who have undergone these losses feel the loss at a profound level, but it doesn't make them not human. They don't become the sort of like their entire emotional life isn't this monolith of sadness right. at that moment. There's still right. other, they, they remain human. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think is um, what's interesting about the podcast uh, beyond what I hope it does, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, as we were talking about before, there there seems to be like these unspoken rules about, you know, how one should grieve and how one should feel. And um, people are kind of on the stage at times uh, with that. It also goes, it, it, the, the, another layer of that is the, like you were alluding to, you know, yeah, I've lost people, but like, it wasn't that bad. Or like, they, I wasn't super close to them. Like, like these, these qualifiers come in and to like validate whether you are grieving or whether you should even listen to a show about grief because, you know, you're fine or you're removed. You know, I'm guessing people of all levels of grief can benefit from this conversation. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's, um, if you haven't, first of all, if you haven't had this happen to you yet, it's going to, when I say that without an attempt to be, I'm not trying to threaten you, but it really is like, you know, look to your right, look to your left. All of these people are going to be dead. Everybody's dying. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's that element of it that hopefully this will prepare you for something that is just an inevitable part of it. And that, um, is, I, 
I'm not trying to convince people that death isn't sad. I think there are people who, who, you know, it's just kind of part of this circle of life, beauty, whatever. That's not me. I mean, I, I don't like it. It sucks, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is part of it. And I think that it will help you understand what you're feeling, what you're about to feel or how other people feel that maybe you've had trouble communicating with. Also, I think like one thing that people who are, you know, grief adjacent can do to support people is to engage them in conversations, you know, obviously taking cues from them emotionally, if they don't want to talk about it, Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's their own thing. But if in the, in the moment where you find yourself with them and ready to have that conversation, and it seems like they might be ready to not get caught up in your own, uh, you know, hangups and help them with that. And I think, Mm -hmm. um, remembering that they are not other than you in that time can be helpful. I think there's a tendency to be like, with someone who suffers grief, you're like, oh my gosh, you're so brave. I could never. And it's like, well, no, I'm not any braver than you are. This just happened to me. Right. You know, but it's going right. to happen to you too. We're not, I'm, I'm no braver. I'm no better. I'm no wiser. Nothing has made me different from you. You were my best friend before this happened, before, you know, my sister died. You remain my best friend. Let's still be best friends in this time. Right. Right. Or right. whatever. Yeah. And, when people have experienced profound loss and grief, there is an automatic understanding and connection. Um, and I know something you wrote about is like, it's when there's someone who's lost tremendously with people who don't feel they've lost tremendously. And there can be that disconnect, that awkward, um, I don't know what to say. Um, and I remember a, a good friend of mine who had lost her mother. This is years ago. She talked about how it's just odd because people don't know what to say to you. So they don't say anything at all. And, and, and I was, I was felt guilty of that. Like I didn't know what to say. And I, and then one of our colleagues where we worked, um, came up to her who had also lost a parent and said, you know, um, that really sucks. And I remember her telling me that's the best, that's like the most affirming thing that she had heard in so long. It really, it's so, it's like, so I, that's a response that I love. (laughs) I really do because it's, it's mostly just like, Hey, the thing you feel is bad. And I know, I don't know how to touch it, but I can see it or I can feel it. And I know that it's, I know it's not good. And even just having somebody affirm your, their awareness of your sadness can be so liberating because it's like, okay, now we're talking about what's real here. Yeah. And not that there's not a place for let me try and cheer you up, but sometimes I think the let's all have a good attitude about this is like I I do that's feel psychotic. Yeah, I can't I can't do that right now. Let me just yeah. be sad. The the sense of like you know someone who's like I'm going to jump down in the hole with you for a minute mm-hmm. is sometimes better than someone being like let me pull you out of there. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I don't know if you uh, want to keep anonymity or confidentiality, but um, if not, I'm wondering what your son's name is. Uh, my son's name yeah. uh, is Fisher Daniel Kane. Nice. Um, so your other kids, Fisher is alive. Fisher is celebrated. Um, it's part of, um, you wrote about them wanting candles on the cake for Fisher. And how did that, how did that, that's magical. Like, how did that, how was that fostered? How did that come about? Um, I mean, my wife and I talked about it a little bit, but I think mostly it was just like, a lot of it just happens when it happens, you know, like you're having a sad moment or, um, we wanted them to know. And I think that that's in part because he's a part of our family us he remains that and will will remain a part of our family um but also it's something uh that i wouldn't have been able to keep from them like it would have made me feel distant from them to be to keep it a secret or to be like you know that thing is too sad for them mm-hmm. and i hope i re i mean you know again i never know if i've done the right thing i hope that it's not too sad for them I don't think it is. I think it's more just like an awareness of the world that maybe their friends don't have. And again, it doesn't make them any better than anybody else. It's just like, here's something else that can happen that you may not have known. Like I, um, like we live in New York city, right? So 
my kids have, you know, a, a, a kid in their class who's like, I'm pansexual. Or, and that's like, I never had that growing up. <laughs> that's not, that's not a thing I'd ever, that's a term that I barely understand now. Yeah. And my kids are like, yeah, who cares? Like, like it doesn't phase them right. to have that piece right. of information. It's just another thing that they know. Oh, this could, this can exist. Great. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that to some degree, what we've told them about Fisher is like that. It's just like this. Okay. So this is more thing about the world. I didn't know this before, but I don't think it overwhelms them so much as it, um, enlarges them mm-hmm. but you know, I, could, I could be wrong who who could possibly project 30 years from now when they sit down with you and go look <laughs> my parents really fucked me up big time with this stuff about fisher i hope that's not yeah. true right um right so right. Uh, you call it magical maybe it maybe yeah. it is yeah and we we try and make it um something that that has joy in it even though yeah. we feel sad and we're open about that so like you know on the end of the last year um on what we call fisher day we got a bunch of food from uh from the supermarket and donated took it to a community fridge and we might do that again tonight it's just like trying to make it a thing that is not this you know albatross of, of sadness hung around their necks but more like mm. you know let's what can we do to honor this this person who remains a part of us yeah and i i do think it's really healthy for us to talk to our kids um, in honest and age-appropriate ways about anything that they're experiencing or secondarily experiencing. Because if we don't give some words to it, it's just a feeling, right? It's just this like this energy in the room that then you make up stories about what this could be. Uh, and so... I mean, you've you you have a a ritual, a family ritual, and a conversation about Fisher that um, explains the reality of your family. Yeah, and I think for thank you for saying that first of all, but but also, I think for me, and it took me a long time to learn this about myself. Any um, strong feeling that you have that you omit or that you keep secret or that you lie about for me it always like metamorphs into some kind of shame Mm -hmm. and i find it very hard to tolerate that like it's it makes me feel awful Mm -hmm. and that's something that i've tried to so like you know my wife and i have these feelings we're not like sitting our kids down and being like, okay, look in daddy's eyes while he cries. <laughs> it's yeah. not like that. It's not that kind of situation. It's more just like, and, and I'm not always quick to say, everybody stop right now. Daddy's feeling sad. But it's more like if my son notices that I'm like a little bit, you know, to the left, that I'll be like, yeah, you know, I just, I'm sorry. I had a moment where I thought something that made me sad for a second. And if he, and if he wants to know more about it, then I'll tell him. Right. But you know, also uh, they're kids, so you're trying to take their temperature too. I'm not trying to, uh, yeah, to right. drown him in buckets of adult emotions. Right, right. Well, and that's really important that uh, being aware of our kids' state too, which is why it can be quite complicated being a parent, which is needing to be aware of ourselves first and foremost, which is one of the primary uh, points of the show. Is this that self awareness? Because everything comes out of us and. Um, the feelings and the experiences and the behavior with our kids, but then also simultaneously being aware of where our kids at and how they're processing. I mean, that could be a lot. Yeah. And the other thing that I hope is beneficial is that I'm trying to teach my living kids to be open emotionally as well. Yeah. Because, you know, it happens with kids. It happens with adults too, if we're, if we're being honest, but like right. that thing I was talking about, how, I get mad at somebody in the supermarket. Why? Because something happened to me a week ago and I didn't really deal with it. So, you know, I can see that happen to my kids. Like something happens to them in the morning and they come home from school and they're huffing and puffing about, you know, the, the something about their snacks. And I'm like, what, the, what is this about? And yeah. how trying to help them be like, Oh, you know what it really is about? It really is about this other thing. And I think that's a, I hope that that's a tool that I can, you know, put in their toolbox, which is just pr- trying to process their own emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Agreed. Also, I don't know if any of this is true. Maybe it's way better yeah. to just keep it all stuff. No, down. no, it's not everyone. No, <laughs> no. Michael, your instincts are strong. Your instincts are strong. Um, and 
I just love how you got your guys are you're modeling and doing this as you are also growing and experiencing life, right? Your first 10 years, you did it one way because that's all you knew. And it's 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 evolving. And I mean, now you have a show that is openly talking about this tough stuff about grief. And like you said, um, either you've experienced profound loss or you're going to there. There's like, there's no way, there's no way out of it. And it, um, you triggered one of my own childhood, uh, memories, long memories is I was deathly afraid of dying for years from a young child through adolescence. Gosh, I even think through college. Um, and I would read books on it and I'd grapple with it. It's this intense fear. And then I had this realization that every human being who has ever lived has had to deal with death and has died ultimately. And if, yeah. ev if every human being can experience it, I'm no different than them. And it just gave me this weird sense of final, some calm about this thing. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, I think the... I think people do like think of death with such fear, and, but it will, I don't want to just reiterate what you said. It's a waste of time, but that, that I feel that profoundly. I, I don't, I'm not afraid of death. I don't know that I, that I have been, I, uh, I'm very afraid of pain. <laughs> the idea yeah. of dying. I do not, yeah. I do not want to experience dying. I don't think, cause that sounds bad, <laughs> but yes. just being yeah. dead doesn't seem, doesn't seem that bad to me. Cause it is like, well, that's just, that's, that's definitely going to happen. That's, that's a hundred percent. Death is undefeated. There are yeah. so many more dead people than alive people. It's not even close. Yeah. What would you, what would you say to parents? Um, who are dealing with the profound loss right now, you know, a loss of a child, um, your lived wisdom, right? Again, this is your experience. Um, and you have a lot of experience in this. What, what, what would you tell them? Uh, I think the most helpful thought for me during that time and the time after was that you have permission to feel however it is you feel for however long it is that you feel it. And, you know, another part of it that is folded in for me, and a lot of people I think will relate to this, is that I'm the dad. And that's different a little bit than being the mom. So I think part of it for me was also like, is this maybe her thing? Like, maybe this is her thing. And I'm over here, and I'm going to help. I'm going to help her. But what's actually happened has happened to her. And I think that mm -hmm. with her help and also through therapy and also through self-reflection, not judging that my own feelings as like, these don't belong to me. Right. I think was something that was also helpful to me. So, mm -hmm. But to answer your question, yeah, permission to feel whatever it is you feel and forgiveness of yourself for whatever it is lack of judgment try try mm -hmm. not to judge yourself mm -hmm. um i wish i had that more tidy in a like yeah. a, a couple a couple of no. aphoristic sentences <laughs> well i i think it it um to me it mirrors the topic of grief and loss it's the farthest thing from tidy right it's just this it's just yeah. pro this is a process that unfolds uh for a lifetime um and uh and the important thing is 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 just this this awareness of it and this 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 conversation about it, the conversations you're having about it on your podcast, um, with lots of people who are both well known and less well known, and it's like this runs across humanity, and um, we're taking Ooh, it out yeah. of the closet. Yeah, sorry, that's just one thing I wanted to add to that that you just brought up. Is the other thing I would say to those people is you're not alone here. You may think you're alone, but the thing that does happen when f you lose someone, particularly like when parents die, that's like a natural death. Most, you know, uh, meaning that you expect that to happen in your lifetime. When your child dies or even if uh, um, a, a miscarriage, that's a thing that people really don't talk about. But once it happens for us, 
once we sort of started reintegrating ourselves into society, so many people that we knew were like, you know, I never tell anybody about this, but um, we had a son or, you know, my wife miscarried four times or whatever. And you become a community that you would never want to be a part of, but that is there for you. All of these people, people that like, you know, people that you go to church with or that you play basketball with right now, who you look at their lives and you go, oh man, you know, Chuck's really got it made. The guy's just, everything's going perfect for him. When you experience tragedy, Chuck is going to go, you know, listen, I never told anybody about this, but, Mm -hmm. and you're going to see that all these people that you think of as, you know, invulnerable and untouched by sadness have gone through some really like, you know, seemingly unbearable shit. Yeah. And, we are every place and you know, we have your back is what I would say to people who are suffering those losses. Nice. Okay. I want to take a moment for that because that's really important for people to hear. Okay, Michael, it is time for the parent footprint moment question. Oh, geez. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual a parent, or an awareness about your parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, or those you love. Um, Okay, so here's, uh, I think I could answer that question 50 different ways, but I'm going to give you one that I've been thinking of um, since since you brought this question to my attention, uh, which is that... um, Maybe six months ago, I was playing basketball um, with you know a bunch of much younger people. I hang out with younger people all the time. It's terrible. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, we're playing basketball. I've been playing for maybe 30 minutes, and my son came over to the basketball court to ask me if I could go kick the soccer ball around with him. And I said, hang on, I'm in the middle of the game. You know, the game had just started. It was maybe like, you know, two to two or playing to 15. Hang on in the middle of the game. When the game's over, I'll be there. And he goes, okay. And he turns his back to me. And I remember in that moment being like, no, this is that. This is one of those times. Mm. This is a mm. time where like that kid, he's going to remember that this happened. And, you know, not because he's weak or bad or mean or anything, but he's going to see like, okay, I understand my dad's priorities are. And here's where I fall. I'm mm-hmm. just under third game of basketball. So I remember taking that moment to be like, hey, guys, uh, I got to stop. I got to go. And going with my kid and being like, let's go play soccer. And I don't mean that I did that. I don't think I did that in any way that was selfless. It's really more like, yeah, I love I love this kid. I mean, I love yeah. him like crazy. And I want him to I want him to feel good and be good. And because that's what makes me feel good and be good. And so. I think about those moments a lot since that of like, is this one of those times where the thing that I do will imprint upon this child in a way that I, that I would rather not. And if so, can I adjust my behavior in a way that makes me feel proud of what I've done? Wow. A, a, a side note to that is that, I'm sure I'm not aware of all those moments. I'm sure there are, um, uh, you know, uh, there's a hundred of those moments every day Yeah. that, yeah. you know, my, I, that I do something where if you played back the tape, I'd be like, whoopsie daisies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I try to be more mindful of that. That, that was like, that was a parent footprint moment. I mean, that just embodies what we're about and so i just want to highlight that like like in the moment catching yourself pausing having a realization due to this awareness changing your behavior like oh no no i'm actually gonna do this because you are thinking about the impact on your child now and on the long haul that's nailed it Oh, wow. Great. That's good. Cause yeah. I was nervous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> you nailed the moment and you nailed the story. <laughs> Michael, uh, thank you for, uh, for sharing your story today and, um, for bringing this really important conversation about grief and loss to the sh- to your show, um, with humor 
right? With um, like all the emotions, right? Expressing all the emotions. Uh, tell everyone where they can, I mean, you're doing a ton of stuff as everyone who, who, who uh, heard the bio at the beginning of the show, where people find your show and, uh, and all the other works that you're into. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm on Twitter at Cruz Kane. I'm on Instagram at the same place. Um, I have a podcast that we've just discussed at length called A Good Cry, which you can, you know, rate and subscribe to at your leisure. Um, and that's pretty much it. You know, I write for TV, so I'm sure you'll see me out there from time to time. And, uh, you know, I'm also in Brooklyn. So if you see me, say hi. <laughs> see you on the basketball court. <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. All right. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everyone, that concludes our show, A Good Cry. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become. You know what to do. Subscribe, rate, do all those things that show everyone that this show matters and share with everyone who you think will benefit. And as always, I will leave you with the guiding question. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll dot com forward slash ads for more information go to exactly listen subscribe and leave us a review on apple podcasts stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts